0: hey it's nick back once again yeah it's been a while and i'd like to blame uh marathon training kids schools restarting work like all the above but i gotta confess it's because pro evo got released and i honestly think i am an addict i mean it's my heroine like i think i need help like an intervention but not yet as i'm still like washing and eating and stuff so it could be worse i need to say a quick bite to Corey cory vander turk thanks for getting in touch and hope your parents enjoyed being back home and got to see blair main statue um, also, a really big thank you to Robert Matchett, Pete Muff-McCoo, and Randall McGregor for very generously sponsoring me for the New York Marathon. I really appreciate it, guys, and uh, if you two would like to sponsor me, just Google Just given and Nick Hatton, but uh, if you don't, that's okay, Like no pressure. I have to do a quick bite you to Johnny Watson, who, uh, who seems to know everything about deities, and also it's a weird story about being first fluffer to Boy George. Also, as you may or may not know, this is pretty much a one-man show, except for my mate Mark, who sang the song at the start, but... All the rest is just really me, but no longer. I now have a researcher. Yes, uh, how awesome is that? Now, it's my cousin Bev. She shares my uh, passion for history. So if you have any ideas for stuff you'd like us to cover, let me know and I'll send my new information once to work. So welcome aboard, Bev. But now onto some news of a career for nature. The website at reverendhistory.com is offline, as in like dead, has been for a few days. I was tipped off earlier in the week and I I mean it seems like there was a disk crash on the host servers and even my off-site backup was destroyed. Me, Alex it was. I mean where was their off-site storage? In the garden shed? I mean at the risk of sounding all Alex Jones you know they're out to get me they're trying to silence me take me offline. Well either that or the hosting company are just as incompetent as the DUP when it comes to keeping records. Ah well we're still alive on some social media with Twitter at a ref history it's 156 followers and Facebook at 88 growing also we may be doing an Auster language twitter post series following in the footsteps of our widely ignored flags of Ulster series so look out for that all depends if you can set down and prove a controller for more than five minutes which i'm certainly not making any promises of but anyway here's episode 015 from friends the fatal frenemies
1: to learn of the past the can't be asked it's researching such a mystery so I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn last, of busters are in history.
0: On the 1st of January 1922, the British Empire was at its absolute zenith. Its vast tentacles covered a quarter of the globe and would have almost 500 million people under its red, white and blue banner. However, despite bringing nothing but peace and kindness to its subjects, trouble was never too far away. And in this case, it really wasn't far at all. Just like a quick fiery hop across the Irish Sea, in fact, to, oh, yes, you guessed it, Ireland. Now, despite Britain doing the world a big favour and shooing off those pesky Germans, the Irish had shown their ingratitude by declaring themselves a republic. Well, a few had and the rest were just expected to follow. But far from causing a mass outbreak of peace, it just led to even more shit going down. And eventually, to a civil war. So if you want to hear more, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking, whoa, whoa, whoa. but wait just two seconds there, this is a biggie, just like when you're a kid and you decide to really tidy your room, you know what I mean, really, really tidy it, you pull everything out, you sort it into piles, you find things you've accused your siblings of stealing or destroying months ago, but then, halfway through, you just look at the mess and go, oh shit, what did I do, how did it get to this state?" and you end up just sort of pushing all the stuff under the bed maybe clean it a couple of years time. Well, we haven't done that. We finished hiding in our room. And yes, it's a bloody big room. So you may need a toilet break or whatever, but if you're listening on the headphones and you don't really need to remove them, so you can listen as you go, so to speak. But just remember to wash your hands before touching your phone again, you dirty clarts. So Ireland then, or era, the Republic, Greater Scotia, Hibernia, Down South—the occupied twenty-six, maybe—it's gone by numerous names throughout the years. Do people mean the island or the nation? Who knows? It's all very confusing at times, isn't it? But what isn't confusing is that every single issue that has happened there can be attributed directly to the Brits. They caused it, and that's that. No arguments sort of or debates. Just accept that as truth. Ish. But we need to go back to the early 1900s here, the 20th century, possibly before some of you were even born, and talk about Ireland. And to clarify for this podcast, we will use Ireland as a term to describe the whole island, with Ulster being the northernmost province, and the south is, well, a description for the other three. Ireland then, early 1900s. Families were huge, Guinness was a dietary staple, and pigs ran through the houses unattested. But still, many of the people grumbled. Some wanted home rule, a devolution of power. Irish people running Ireland. The idea had been mooted for decades, with two bills being denied by the Brits, one in 86 and another in 1893. Like a dad informing a son he wasn't mature enough to move out, yet something was brewing, and even the Londoners could sniff it they decided to actually try being a bit dead on and started some social reform, including an Irish Land Act of 1903, by which huge chunks of land passed from the landlords to the mostly Catholic tenants. So much so that by 1921, over half of the country, a mere 11.5 million acres had switched ownership, which for any rugby fans out there is about uh, 11.5 million rugby pitches. There was also the Pensions Act of 1908, which granted eligible people over 70 a princely sum of five shillings a week. Now, not all the cadgers were deemed worthy. You couldn't be, and I quote, an institutional lunatic, have been convicted of drunkenness, or had a history of habitual failure to work. My God, as if they didn't want anybody to get the bloody pension. However, there was a sneaky little ploy. Birth records only really came into effect in Ireland around 1864, so all of a sudden the average age of the population surged and everyone started dressing in brown, dyeing their hair purple and pinching the cheeks of little children, all just to claim the coin. So why are we telling this? Well it's all about the social revolution. As we said the Brits were chipping away at the discontent. So many people now had land and were generally happy. Fake old people had more cash and incidentally their families visited more often. But yet some were still not happy. They still demanded self-government. A third home rule bill appeared in 1914. The Liberals were in power in Britain and Prime Minister Hubert Asquith was giving it the big I am for Ireland. Not because he cared but because he needed its votes. John Rebman, the head of the Irish Home Rule Party, had the potential to be kingmaker, very similar to that of the DUP today with its confidence in supply agreement with the Tories, which may or may not include free holidays to Sri Lanka. Redmond's votes could make or break the Liberal government, so Asquith totally bummed them up and the Home Rule Bill was introduced on April 11th, 1912. Coincidentally, it was the same month that the Titanic left Belfast, and the bill, it also sank. But this wasn't due to a big old ice cube. No, it was because of Giverfield. It was because of Gravrillo Princip and the outbreak of World War One. Yeah. World War One had broken out, an event that Aswith later described as the greatest stroke of luck in his lucky career. I'm sure he meant it in relation to the Irish question, but sure the needless slaughter of millions was bound to be good for someone, wasn't it? Two years previous, when the Home Rule Bill was first introduced, the main men in Ulster, James Craig and Edward Carson, had flipped out and formed the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force. Their mission was to keep the province of Ulster free from Home Rule by force if necessary. They began drilling, swelling their ranks and ran guns from Germany. Yeah. Yes, Germany, as in the Kaiser and his clan, who were prepping the invade. Well, anyone I suppose who looked at them the wrong way. You have to wonder what deals and packs were made in darkened rooms for that little transaction to occur. Anyway, the UVF were now a well-armed, well-manned and overt fighting threat, ready to lay down their lives for Ulster. And upon hearing the news of Franz Ferdinand's demise, Carson offered 35,000 of them to the British war effort against his Bavarian buddies. Politicians, eh? Not to be outdone, John Redmond launched into a full speech mode, sensing it like a, a fight in Ireland could earn them their home rule that they'd so sought after, declaring the sons of Ireland themselves, North and South, Catholic and Protestant, and whatever the origin of their race might have been, Williamite, Cromwellian or Old Celtic, standing shoulder to shoulder would defend the good order and peace of Ireland and defend her shores against any foreign foe. Field Marshal Haig, the British High Commander, must have been absolutely delighted with the offering of fresh meat for the grinder and around 210,000 soldiers from all four of Ireland's provinces would go on to fight ferociously in both France and Flanders fields. Some, however, did not go to fight. They felt that Britain would be stronger with the Germans vanquished, so stayed and concocted plans to attack from within its own borders while most eyes were on the war, viewing England's difficulty as Ireland's opportunity. The IRB, a secret organisation and not the IRA's B team, sprung their surprise on the 24th of April 1916, declaring Ireland a Republic on the steps of the general post office. Now for any youths listening, the post office used to be a big deal, like way before Amazon and all that, you got your stamp surged or your pension, just generally talked to shit but you waited in the ridiculously slow moving queues. Probably most of the queues in the post office that day would have looked at Patrick Pearce, who was the proud proclaimer, like you'd Look at someone declaring that Jesus had just risen. Aside from informing the onlookers as to Ireland's new status, however, another interesting part of the proclamation referred to support from gallant allies in Europe, aka the Germans. So it seems that one thing that united Ireland at this time was that both sides of the Great Divide were flirting with threats for firearms and freedom. By the end of the Easter Rising, almost 500 people lay dead. Five times that were injured, but of the dead, more than half are civilians, about a quarter British forces and about 80 other rebels. Let's forget about the Irish civilians, because they're just a statistic, really, aren't they? Just people trying to get food for their kids and getting killed in the crossfire. I mean, they would happily have laid down their lives if they could only see how glorious and peaceful Ireland is now, wouldn't they? So, yes, ignoring the innocents that were slaughtered, there's the interesting quirk that of the first responders, you know, the servicemen trying to quell this artist's uprising. Many were locals, like actual born and bred Irishmen. One of the first British Army officers to die was Lieutenant Gerald Nealon of the 10th Royal Dublin Fusiliers. He was 34 and from County Roscommon and a passionate Irish nationalist. But the fog thickens further as it turns out that his younger brother, Arthur, was only one of the rebels. Irishman versus Irishman, brother v brother. And this is a recurring theme. Once the insurrection was crushed, many of the rebels were executed by fire and squad, much to the disgust of the public. Again, let's ignore the innocents that were killed as the executions roused. The Celtic romanticism in many, a nationalist fervour was growing and taking root. Tom Kettle, an Irish poet, fighting with many of his countrymen in the Somme, maybe sums up the feelings of the Easter Rising when he wrote in a letter home describing his thoughts on the IRB rebels. These men will go down as heroes and murderers, and I will go down, if I go down at all, as a bloody British officer. Now, Tom Kettle would never leave the song. In fact, he would become one of the forgotten thousands that died for Ireland, yet didn't fit the nationalist anti-British narrative. Many, however, would return. And as Robert Lynn said in the Daily News at the time, soldiers who fought for the Allies were being converted by the thousands in the Sinn Féiners. In the same year of the Rising, that of 1916, the Ulster Unionist Consul agreed to the partition of Ireland, by which they would jettison three of the nine counties that formed the province. But being no doubt that this was a calculated manoeuvre to ensure a unionist majority within Ulster, but it was still a decision made with heavy hearts, one MP stated that men not prone to emotion shed tears. Probably none more so than those unionists who woke up to find themselves future members of the Free State, and having to stuff all their Union Jack paraphernalia into the garden shed before they get mobbed by the masses next door. On the 11th of November 1918, World War One came to an end. Britain had prevailed. Yay! Take that, Jerry! 28,000 Irishmen had given their lives for democracy. And rich people, obviously. In the election of the same year, the 14th of December, all men over 21 got the vote. So did women, but only if they were over 30. And were householders or married the one. Because they're dead immature women, aren't they? And they can't really be trusted with something, like, really important, such as voting. Now, the Home Rule Party, they get wiped out. Except in Ulster. Because, you know, we're really backward and stuff. Sinn Féin were in. Well, most were actually still incarcerated. And as for the ones that were free, they really mustn't have, liked sailing. As they decided they didn't want to cross the sea and go to the Parliament in Westminster. So formed one of their own in Ireland. Called the Dollar An. Carson too received the summons in Irish to attend the opening of this new parliament, but I can only guess that he didn't understand it, as unlike the 24 locked up Sinn Féiners, he was marked absent and put on the parliamentary naughty list. Now during its first session on 21st of January 1919, the elected Speaker, one Cathalbrouille, read out the Declaration of Independence in Irish so as to ratify the establishment of an Irish Republic. You wonder though how many of the politicians are standing there asking, What bloody language is that? And his mates replying, I don't have the first feckin' clue. Just pay attention and hopefully they won't ask any questions. Now, the speaker, the aforementioned Calabria was a bit of an oddity, as he was both a Sinn Féin politician and also a member of the IRA. But I suppose there's no jam without butter, eh? The Cattle and his main mugger, a man named Michael Collins, who strangely was also a high-ranking government official and an IRA man, both these guys called for violence. As the same day as Cathal's speech was made to the confused masses, the IRA, formerly known as the Irish Volunteers, shot and killed two men of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Interestingly, the RIC was heavily Catholic and local, and the IRA would have known that, but didn't care as they wore a British uniforms so were expendable. Collins, as head of IRA Intelligence, also formed a motley crew of assassins called The Squad. Their handle may have been a bit shit but their mission was heinous and they were sent to kill agents whose name Collins had found what was written through the British ambassador's punch Getting a little lurked by the uppity Irish on the 12th of September 1919, Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, outlawed the dollar an. Now I'm no special adviser, but removing and outlawing a publicly elected governing body doesn't seem like the best way to win hearts and minds of the people does it? Though it kind of worked for Hitler when he burned down the Reichstag and it did coincide with a huge boost in support for Sinn Féin. Violence escalated further, with the RIC bolstering their ranks with former British soldiers who, due to their mishmash of a uniform, became known as the Black and Tans, complete with brutal reputation. On Sunday the 21st November 1920, Collins dispatched the squad to assassinate a number of British intelligence agents, or spies, the me, leading the 14 corpses in the street, though they had targeted many more. In retaliation, the Black and Tans, or possibly just the British Army, did what any normal sane people would do and marched right into a sporting event in Croke Park and sprayed gunfire indiscriminately into the crowd of thousands, killing 13. I'm not sure if they were hoping to randomly hit IRA supporters, but they certainly helped enlist a few that day. Also later that evening, three suspected IRA men were shot whilst trying a daring escape from Her Majesty's pleasure or tortured before being murdered in their jail cells, depending on who you read. Either way, the events of the day became known as Bloody Sunday, and if that rings a bell, it's quite the common name for atrocities in Ireland in the 20th century, and the next to take the moniker was not even a year away. The violence had spread in Ulster, historically known as the most wild of the provinces, and it's proved to be the case once more with the violence being retrospectively rebranded The First Troubles. It kicked off around Easter time, Proportional representation was introduced to the UK and the Unionists lost control of the gerrymandered Derry for the first time. The walled City's first Catholic mayor, Hugh Dougherty, announced in his inauguration speech that Ireland's right to determine her own destiny will come about whether the Protestants of Ulster like it or not. Obviously a neutral guy there then. And I'm not saying that his words incited the masses. I mean, it's not like the province was a partner keg at the time. But it was followed by Protestant Catholic gangs raining bullets on each other, leading to over 40 fatalities, which is quite a lot for a supposedly civilised town in the Western world. There were further outbreaks in Banbridge, Drumore, and Fermanagh, but it was especially worse only in the wild, wild east of Belfast, and got worse during July. I mean, nothing in the ever happens in July here, does it? But there you go. Mass violence was sparked once more when a cop from Ulster was murdered in Cork. Like hordes of ex-servicemen marched in the shipyards, especially Harn and Wolf, otherwise known as the docks that brought you the Titanic, and searched for anyone wearing crosses or beads, or for any rotten prods. You know those tolerant bastards who just aren't anti-Catholic enough, with many getting turfed in the lagging if they were lucky. All in all, over 7,000 Catholics were ejected from their jobs amidst riots of stones and shots with 22 killed and hundreds wounded. Meanwhile, in Westminster, home of the UK government, who maybe looked at Ulster like he would look at someone shitting in the park, set up the Ireland Committee to decide on the borders of the province. Six states became Northern Ireland, home rule to those it didn't originally wanted, but saw it as a vastly preferred status into being subordinate to Dublin and Sinn Féin. The Government of Ireland Act 1920 was ratified on the 23rd of December, to some an early Christmas present. The island was partitioned in April 1921, but Carson was not amused. He fell for the unionists, you know, and the rest of the 26 counties. and Unable to face them, he pulled a second and handed the reins of power over James Craig, who loudly proclaimed for unionists to rally round me that I may shatter our enemies and their hopes of a republic flag. The union jack must sweep the polls, vote early, work late. And they did. Forty unionist MPs were elected, as opposed to only six Sinn Féin and six other. Needless to say it's did nothing to calm of the situation. Belfast had daily running battles with deaths of not just in the army or the IRA, as more well than seven hundred civilians died, and around a hundred of those were condemned to death for espionage by the Republicans. Convicted spy. The penalty for all who associate with the auxiliary cadets, black and tans, and R.I.C. was tagged under the bodies and signed off with IRA, comma. Beware. Just in case you were not any tight. The doll had stuck the roar into by backing a Belfast boycott by which they refused to work with Belfast banks and businesses. But this only further alienated an already partisan Protestant proletariat. By July 1921, everyone had had enough. The sun was out, and people, sick of looking like walking milk bottles, whipped out the deck chairs and lapped up the vitamin D. And it worked, in a way. Sword, kind of thing. On the 9th of July, representatives between the Crown and the Dole met to discuss a truce. And with terms agreed, they come into effect on the 11th of July at high noon. Call it high noon kind of reminds me of cowboys facing off in like one final duel And that's what happened On the 10th of July 1921 the IRA attacked an RIC armoured car Killing one and wounding two officers Already concerned by its potential sellout the prods went mental But the Catholics were also at the end of their tether too Shit got real By the end of the day 16 people in around 200 houses were no more With West Belfast like a war zone Give birth to Belfast Bloody Sunday Oddly, kind of Out of the Blue, the king popped over, and he pleaded for all Irishmen to pause, to forgive and forget, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, and to join in making for the land they love a new era of peace. Even more oddly, people listened, and the truth came into effect on the eleventh night, just in time for the prods to get their balls of bucky out and go marching. But then the five only went and spoiled the celebrations by issuing a curfew, so they all had to be tucked up in bed early, and not broken in a field as normal. Now, I'd like to say that everybody then lived happily ever after, but, spoiler alert, they didn't. And much more violence was to come, right up until midway through 1922. But at least the rest of the island kind of trusted up. And then there was a treaty. And it is here that we will actually stop doing context for like an Irish civil war and actually talk about the civil war. Well, we will in a second, as we just need a quick recap and i legend let you in a secret. This was actually the initial intro, but then... I wanted to expand it a little and so we got what we have here today which is the way he wants it well he gets it and i'm hoping someone out there gets some guns and roses reference but if you don't that's fine anyway here's the original recap uh, slash intro in the aftermath of the easter rising which no is not about jesus and a big old rock Sinn Fein won the 1918 general election it pledged to withdraw from the british parliament and declare an irish republic this would mean rejecting outright home rule or even limited self-government. The Brits didn't improve so they had a scrap. It was called the War of Independence. Ireland was basically saying, we are strong, we hit your face, we want you out. This is our land and we will fight you for it. Eamon de Valera, a former prisoner, due to his role in Easter Rising, which is not about Jesus, remember, was president of the dog for a bit after escaping prison before skipping off to America, the land of his birth and ironically his freedom. He's seen by many as an Irish hero, though it's interesting to point out that he was only part Irish as his dad was Hispanic, and I've always disliked him, not for his hawkish appearance, nor for any political beliefs or that kind of jive, but because he played for Black Rock College, which is like the New York Yankees of Irish schools rugby and would generally gob us every year. I guess I just haven't got over it, you know. It's sad, I suppose. But anyway, during his fundraising, Slash open from arrest while stateside, Michael Collins filled the vacuum, and the two men may have had some differences upon Eamon's return, so much so that he therefore tried to get Collins to take his place in the U.S. But Collins saw through his attempt to alienate him in America, turned the feck off. It would not be the last time that they would clash. When a temporary truce was agreed in July 1921, De Valera hopped in the steamer straight to London and popped into David Lloyd George's house for tea. No doubt they chatted about chicks and cocktails and all that jive, but somehow this led on to partition and neither could agree with each other. It became clear that neither a republic nor a 32-county independent state was on the table, with Lloyd George informing De Valera that if the IRA did not immediately agree to stop the resistance, he would put a soldier in Ireland for every man woman and child in it. He would later be reported as saying that negotiation with de Valera was like trying to pick up mercury with a fork. When de Valera heard this he supposedly inquired as to why Lord George hadn't tried a spoon instead. Now Lloyd George needn't have worried as de Valera was about to make what many regard as a crucial mistake. In his head he was the king of Ireland and he managed to convince the doll to upgrade his role to president of the republic and thus he decided that because the King of England would not be there at the negotiations, he therefore did not need to be there. It was probably just a ploy so he could distance himself from the treaty, if the terms were not kind, as he expected them not to be. Though he did ask the negotiators, chiefly Arthur Griffith, head of Sinn Féin and Michael Collins, to run every decision by him, despite them being given executive power by the doll. As the talks progressed, the delegation or plenty of if you want to be all grandiose, started to embrace their doll given autonomy and left the Valera out in the cold. Lloyd George himself was under intense pressure to put the Irish problem to bed. Ex Prime Minister asked with his quoted as saying there were things being done in Ireland with the knowledge and approval, if not under the direction of government officials that would disgrace the blackest annals of the lowest despotism in Europe. I mean that sounds a bit filthy, but it's not meant to be. On the 5th of December, after long, long months of debate and deliberation, Lloyd George pulled a swift manoeuvre using three letters. And for any kids listening, letters are like paper versions of emails. That you, can, you can hold them in your hand. I mean, it's crazy, I know. The first letter showed the consent of Griffith to not break off negotiations over the Ulster question in return for a commission to redraw the border. But it was a very sneaky manoeuvre by Lloyd George as he showed up Griffith and he tried to split the trust of the delegates in Dublin. The other two were very different versions of the same letter to be sent to James Craig, one saying that agreement had been reached, hooray, or the other to say that Sinn Féin had not agreed to remain in the empire and it was war within three days. After the shock and flurry died down, the delegation finally signed the agreement. It was ten past two in the morning, Churchill handed out the cigars in celebration, noting in his memoirs that Collins rose looking as if he was about to shoot someone, preferably himself. Collins' own thoughts can be articulated by a hard email that he wrote on his way back to the Emerald Isle. Think, what have I got for Ireland? Something she has wanted these past 700 years. Will anyone be satisfied at the bargain? Will anyone? I tell you this, early this morning, I signed my death warrant. Oh, it's like eerily prophetic. The treaty was signed on December the 6th, 1921, and it gave 26 counties a large degree of independence, similar to like Australia or Canada, and the British army and police were to be withdrawn. However, it dissolved the Republic, made the Irish TDs or MPs swear allegiance to the British monarch, and permitted the retention of three strategic naval bases along the Irish coast. Most importantly, confirmed the partition of Ireland that had already been instituted under the 1920 Government of Ireland Act. It was announced, then swiftly denounced, especially by the absent de Valera, and it was heavily debated at heated talks at the Senate chamber of the UCD at Earlsford Terrace. Even Patrick Pierce's mum said she denied it. When I first read that, I thought, she's she's a sassy bitch, all right, isn't she? Just marching into the Doll and kicking off, but um. Yeah, she was actually a TD in her own right. I think I was duped by her being referred to as Patrick Pierce's mum. Must have been some uppity chauvinist, day. Eh? But was she right? Nobody there was proclaiming it as 100% victory for Ireland. But some so more pragmatically than others. And this is demonstrated by the comment of Michael Collins, who said that the treaty provides Ireland with freedom. Not the ultimate freedom that all nations desire, but the freedom to achieve it. What it for sure didn't provide was a 36-county state, as in the agreement Northern Ireland was given self-sufficiency to decide its own position. And the fact that it currently exists, despite what some people say, shows exactly which way that decision went. Despite this, the Ulster boys were mightily suspicious as to how Lord George had got Sinn Féin to agree to terms. Just how had the deal been sweetened to appease them? Craig rushed to Westminster and, after not getting the reassurance he was after, is reported to have gone straight to a GP after finding out he had sat in the same room that Sinn Féin had been in so he could get himself inoculated for fear of getting the dreaded Irish lurgy. <sighs> Craig, fully dosed up, later wrote that violence is the only language understood by Lord George and his ministers. Was this a jab at them being in party with Sinn Féin? Or a veiled threat that Northern Ireland was prepared to go to war to protect itself. Violence was escalating again in Ulster, the problem province. In April, the RUC, or Royal Ulster Conservatory, were formed to replace the now-defunct RIC. Internment was passed into law a few days later, and when the IRA killed the Unionist MP, William J. Twiddell, 200 Catholics were rounded up and imprisoned in Argenta. Not the jewellery shop of a similar name, but a big-ass boat moored in an iron Things were getting tasty. Beatings, brawls, shootings on the streets of Belfast and lootings. People just had to get a new pair of Air and a 4K TV. But then, suddenly, it all stopped. Like the power going out in a storm. And this particular storm was further down south. As we alluded to earlier, it wasn't just the six counties of Ulster that had a choice to make about partition. The doll had to vote upon the treaty's acceptance or not as well. The choices were to say nay, stop being civil and go back to war, or say Aye become a dominion power of Britain. The Dáil Cabinet passed it by one vote, and in the House itself the vote was split by a mere 70 days. Now you can find out next week just who won. Laters. Nah, money Morgan, Stay strapped in because we're only just getting to the meaty parts, but this is a natural break I was telling you about, or shall we call it a dramatic cliffhanger cut-off point? I ah, well maybe not, so we'll just kill the suspense. 57 said no, but there were 64 in agreement. Democracy wins. But, just like the Remain voters in Brexit, de Valera had a big old strawb and he ended up walking out and taking a number of his followers with him. Two days later, Arthur Griffith was appointed the new president of the Dáil. It was he and Michael Collins that would have the difficult task of dealing with civil war, and with the hardliners who typically went, well, all hardline, and despite the vote being passed by legitimate means, on the 14th of April, around 200 Republicans loaded their rifles once again and occupied the four courts area in Dublin, under one Rory O'Connor. And there they stayed. For like a number of months, even during the first election, it must have been a bit strange going to vote at the time, knowing there was an ongoing internal Sinn Féin-Ira feud, holding part of the Dublin city centre to ransom, like bullets in the ballot box, a term which might resonate the many in Ulster. With all that in the background, the people still voted. Collins was head of the pro-Shinners and De Valera was the main man of the anti-Shinners, and despite being at loggerheads with each other, they were both shrewd enough to know that politics was politics, and that they needed to be united during the vote, or the party as a whole could suffer. Thus they agreed not to contest each other's seats and started the process of vote rigging and intimidation so no one else did either. Basically, they chopped up the election between themselves but the pro-Shinners getting 58 seats and the anti-Shinners getting 36. Once the results were in, the anti-TDs boycotted the new doll. I mean, they can't even be going up Westminster either, lazy bastards. I bet they still claim their money but the shit really hit the fan, especially when the draft Constitution of the Irish Free State was released on the 15th of June 1922 and it still included the name of the king as head of state. Even the Valera, he who looks a little like Voldemort of and he kind of tiptoes between democracy and revolution, depending on what can serve him best. He declared for Rory O'Connor's armed intervention, stating that if the treaty was enforced, its opponents would have to wade through Irish blood, through the blood of soldiers of the Irish government, and through perhaps the blood of the members of the government in order to get Irish freedom. Quite a visceral threat if you take it at face value. A politician inferring violence and force in order to get what he wants. Yet if you look deeper at it, the situation is not really that different than before. Irishmen still killing Irishmen, albeit without the excuse of them being in British uniforms. Speaking of death, a few days later, Sir Henry Wilson, a Unionist politician and former Field Marshal of the British Army, was killed on the steps of his London home by the IRA. Stories emerged that the two assassins, who were later hanged, missed by the first shot, given him the time to draw his sword and charge them down that he died after being shot six times. The irony being that he was one of the more progressive politicians and had he actually advised Craig to encourage the recruitment of loyal Catholics to the RUC. But alas, it was too much for the Brits. One of their own killed in their own capital by a terrorist force that didn't even have the will of its own people behind them anymore. Lloyd George demanded Collins to get control or he would do it himself. So it occurred, that in the darkness of Wednesday 20th of June, the Staters, or pro-Treaty Army, trundled a creaky wheeled field gun borrowed from the British in the range opposite the four courts. The cold rain was drizzling upon the face of the Commandant Emmett Dalton as he gazed across the River Liffey. Not a year previous, he had been fighting side by side with the men peering back across the river. At 4.29 in the morning, he ordered the field gun to fire as the shot fell, Ireland had descended into civil war. It was green on green violence. Comrade killing former comrade. Or as IRB member Richard McCaggy described it, the madness within. It must have been interesting for the Brits to hear what had happened. You can almost see some stereotypically mustachioed colonel saying, Sir, bloody savages have fallen apart since we left them alone. That they were also killing each other with British weapons just adds to the intrigue. Now, I know that the Brits have no track record of arms deals with other countries, so it's hard to believe that they would supply both sides with arms. But that they did was more deception than deliberate action. The British were happy to supply weapons to Collins, their former enemy, now a kind of ally of sorts. But they should have been more wary as he was doing a really nifty switcheroo when it kind of showed where his true allegiances lay. Whilst he was fighting the anti-treaty IRA, the irregulars as we should call them, he still had his eye on Ulster and he wanted to support the IRA there, with weapons, but the only ones he had were British. So he concocted a crafty plan, got into parley with his former mates and the irregulars, yet the ones that he's in open warfare with. Because the Brits weren't totally stupid, a thing, and would have known if Collins had just handed guns straight to the IRA in Northern Ireland, he made a deal to send them to the irregular IRA, and then in turn would send a similar number of their guns up north to bolster the activities there. Just shows the depth of hatred towards the British colonialists, that allowed these two murder-happy groups to remain a gahoots despite the animosity between them. By the following afternoon, the breach had been made and the staters, as the pro-treaty guys were known, flooded across the bridges and into the four courts. Kind of shitting themselves at the prospect of being overrun, Ernie O'Malley decided to blow up the public records office, destroying many documents in the history of Ireland throughout the centuries. A freedom fighter might say that he was doing it to eradicate the British version of history, whilst a terrorist would know that having no recorded history makes it much easier to rewrite. Not that anybody in Ireland would do such a thing as that, eh? Within weeks, the Irregulars were on the back foot. Cathal Brua, the speaker for the doll, had been shot dead, and the four courts' garrisons had surrendered. Many of their forces were scattered. Liam Lynch, now head of the irregular IRA, marginalized the evil era and took the fight to the countryside, waging a strange war, again with many men, many, many men, fighting against those that they were fighting with, not the year previous. One witness from Gilkett wrote to his landlady saying that they were shooting it at one another all day, and it was a terrible battle. They stopped for a cup of tea and both sides admired your ladyship's chrysanthemums. Uh, all right, then. Battle of two but nice standard through the gardens at four for all the survivors. Strange war. Anyway, Limerick and Waterford fell to the staters on the 20th of July, and Cork on the 11th of August, but then disaster struck. Arthur Griffith died suddenly the following day, a brain hemorrhage that manifested by tying his shoelace. Collins, his fellow plenipotentiary and free stater, obviously thought well of him, saying that, In Arthur Griffith there is a mighty force in Ireland. He is none of the wildness of some, I could name. Instead, there is an abundance of wisdom and an awareness of things which are Ireland. But there were other mighty forces, and Collins himself would fall foul of them not ten days later, ambushed in his hometown of Cork. He's reported as saying that they won't shoot me in my own county. But he was wrong. In a tale that smacks of Irishness, he called in the pub for a drink. And the barman just happened to be in a regular, so he tipped off his pals and they laid a trap. And as if the world isn't ironic enough, Collins was killed by a single headshot from Dennis Sonny O'Neill, a former British Army sniper. So the two main men who scribble had been on the treaty lay dead. William T. Cosgrave filled the breach, didn't care for the irregulars, they weren't old pals like Collins had been, and he turned up the heat in them as they stepped up their tactics of terror. Erskine Childers, a Protestant Republican, which may sound as shocking as a Jewish Nazi, but was actually more common than you'd think, was executed. Yeah, you heard me, executed. But we'll get back to that in a second. Tellers was a key figure in the anti-treaty movement. Not only had his boat been used during the Hoth gun run, by which the Irish volunteers secured 1,500 antiquated rifles from a grinning German con man, but he was also the head of the Republican propaganda movement. Liam Lynch, basically the biggest irregular terrorist left, declared that anybody who had signed or voted for the murder bill should be shot in sight. On the 8th of December, the day after T.D. Sean Hales was gunned down whilst in parliamentary business, four IRA men, including Rory O'Connor, captured during the siege of the Four Courts, were sentenced to death. As a solemn warning to those associated who are engaged in a conspiracy of assassination against the representatives of the Irish people. And yes, sentenced to death means executed, exactly what the British had done during the Easter Rising but more extreme as over 77 men would be executed by the Free Staters by the end of the war. It was not a decision taken lightly, but it was deemed necessary to bring the war to a conclusion. It was not popular, and it helped turn the propaganda war back towards the hands of the irregulars. The Irish Times on the following day wrote that, the Free State Government has committed itself to an act of reprisal which eclipses in sudden and tragic severity the sternest measures of the British crown during the conflict with Sinn Féin. Irishmen executing Irishmen. Now, I know I'm banging on about that a lot, but it's interesting to point out that it wasn't just the British who were total bastards during these years. Here's an example, and it involves Rory O'Connor himself. They had a debate about whether or not to execute him, and it came down to a vote. And Kevin O'Higgins was one of the signatories who sided with the bullet. Kevin O'Higgins? Who the fuck is that guy? Terrible Conor McGregor said. Well, he was married not a year previous, and his best man was... the only Rory O'Feckin' O'Connor. Must have been a real shit speech, yeah? Probably slagged off the bride's ma or something, or told one too many stories about the stag day in Benador. Well, he didn't because I've read the copy of his wedding speech. There's no tales of Kev's jeepery as a lad or sown his wild oats or any crack, really. It's a somber fest, a eulogy to his fellow rebels, concluding in a toast to the men of 1916, dead or living. Both Higgins and O'Connor believed in the rising, supported it, fought for it, yet were divided and fought against each other purely over an oath to a king. And be assured that that was exactly what it was about. The Civil War was not about partition. That's right, I said it. It wasn't about Ulster. It was about the King of England's place in the Irish Constitution. To show this, Professor Michael Laff on a history lecturer from UCD carried on work started by his former lecturer Maureen Wall. She checked records of the public dole debates on the treaty and discovered that there were only nine pages out of three hundred thirty, that covered the Ulster question. Professor Laffin himself later went through the private debates, those without the press or the public to witness the discussions, and the politicians were even less inclined to mention partition, with only three out of 181 pages mentioning it, That's not to say it wasn't relevant. It just wasn't what was causing any concern. But again, what did all this mean for Ulster? In late 1921, Craig had stated that "'We have nothing in our view but the welfare of our people. None need be afraid.'" But by late 1922 this had changed and the prods felt that most, if not all, nationalists had given themselves over to the free state and were hell-bent on the total annihilation of Northern Ireland. Any unionist politician seeking any compromise, showing weakness in the face of these Catholic upstarts, had the prospect of being wiped out in the polls. But how to fix that problem? Thousands of Catholics had been forced out of their homes and that just added to the centuries of prior hatred and disturbance. I know you're probably sitting there going, What? They're fighting each other. I mean, I know. It was only a hundred years ago. I mean, the people of Northern Ireland at odds with one another. It just sounds so ridiculous these days, doesn't it? Such a blessed time we're living in, eh? But in the period from July 1920 to 1922, almost 500 people were killed, with three fifths Catholic and two fifths Protestant, with 80 odd soldiers included in that number as well. But strangely, the Civil War was quite positive for Ulster. By 1923, peace had broken out, as most of the Catholics who would have been clamouring to cause trouble in the north were dispatched down south to fight, and fight they did. <laughs> Things were getting well tasty in Ireland. Tensions were high, and terror alerts higher. The executions had led the way in paving a new spate of depravity. Maybe the thinking was, whatever you can do, we can do worse. Kevin O'Higgins' dad was murdered, doll members' houses burnt out, kids attacked, our pets' heads were falling off. Reprisals for reprisals were going full steam. The Freeman's Journal wrote an article entitled The New Horror, and it condemned those that had disgraced Ireland's name in the eyes of the world, and declaring that this is not war, but savagery. And they were right, but worse was to come. The CID, or the Criminal Investigation Department, had killed and tortured numerous anti-Treaty IRA men and boys, dumping their bodies in plain view, stark warnings as to what would happen to those that don't comply with democracy. It's not unlike how the IRA had previously dealt with touts, but it reminds me more of how the Romans dealt with the Spartacus Slave Revolt in 71 BC. They crucified 6,000 slaves along the 200 kilometer Appian Way, which was one of the major roads the Rome. That is one cross for every 35 metres or so. Can you imagine the smell after a couple of days? Not to forget the agony of the slaves as they hung there burning in the sun, but I suppose some local lumberyard would have made a tidy profit, so every cloud and all that. Now, in late December there were a number of further executions in the Dublin jails, or gaols to phonetically pronounce the Irish. But good old best mate killer, Kevin O'Higgins, he didn't think this was enough of a geographical spread, so he proposed that all counties do a little bit of executing, leading the around 30 more prisoners facing death by firing squad within the space of a month. By March 1923, much of Ireland was well and truly sick of the carnage, but not in County Kerry. The part of the island most distant from us are slotted right in the southwest corner. There the war still raged, and it saw more than a score of Republican prisoners take the lead way out of life. On the 6th of March, five stater troops were killed by booby trap and the very next day their commander declared that irregular prisoners could be used to clear mines in the road. Now I'm not entirely sure what that entails. It could mean that they were sent to look for them or possibly to walk the roads in front of the stater troops or even they just had them strapped onto the stater vehicles like a lady on a pirate ship but whichever way, it's probably not good. And many saw it as a euphemism for the irregulars being fair game for death. And this led on to nine prisoners being tied to an uncovered mine before it was detonated. The carnage must have been horrific. But there's actually a funny epilogue to that particular tale. As the staters were reassembling the bodies, they could only find enough parts for eight coffins, so kind of scoffed that one must have been blown to hell. Well, he wasn't. He was blown up into a tree and somehow survived. They later tell his story and it became known as the Ballyseedy Massacre. Who knows how many acts like this were not reported due to all the unlucky sods being blown to smithereens. We know of at least two the following day, killing up to ten more men. Recent reports even suggest that the explosions were put in the roads by the staters themselves and then blamed on the irregulars, just so they could beat them, shoot them and then blow them up. But with almost 300 staters killed and wounded and carry alone, the violence was there from both sides. But, as they say... All good things must come to an end, and so it was on the 10th of April 1923, Liam Lynch, IRA top dog, was mortally wounded and temporary. Within three weeks, the order to dump arms was given and the war ceased. The country was war-weary, broken and battered. It had been quite the ride over the last decade or so, from the Home Rule Crisis through the Easter Rising to the War Independence to Civil War. Despite the outcry over the executions, people realised that the irregulars were hardly saints themselves, and just wanted at the end. So it was time for the Irregulars to change tack and to drop the armed struggle. For now. Sean Morland, a high-ranking IRA man from Cork, said in a letter, The Republican forces may have military success, but they cannot hope to beat the people. We cannot drive them. Let us try to lead them. Now, De Valera, he was still mentioning about in the background, and I'm guessing he wasn't overly sad at Lynch's demise, even though they were on the same side. He tried to weasel his way back in and negotiate a favourable agreement but when his proposals were dismissed by the government he issued the only slightly bitter sounding statement Military victory must be allowed to rest for the moment with those who destroyed the Republic. Chase, Eamon, you big plum, would you get over it? You've just seen 3000 of your countrymen die at each other's hands vastly more than in the War of Independence and you're still being all snarky. In the words of Elsa, let it go. But he didn't let it go. He created a party called Fianna Fall, and he led them back into the Dáil in 1927, but more on him in a second. If we first look back north, we can see how the Civil War affected Ulster. The divide grew even wider, and with Irish eyes distracted by an internal war, the Unionists looked to consolidate their power base. They started by targeting local councils that had pledged loyalty to the Dáil. Lloyd George's government in London was collapsing and he had no time to dedicate to the Ulster issue as a unionist gerrymandered the hell out of the province. If you don't know what that is, I'll save you the dictionary time and tell you. It's when you manipulate county and district boundaries so as to split the votes up to your liking, but it ensured as many unionists took power as possible. Coupling this with a policy of non-attendance from the nationalists meant there was no organised opposition to these plans. Cosgrove, The Free State Premier, well, he was too busy trying to mop up the Republicans to care. Well, at least not until 1924, when he finally got round to pushing for the promised border commission. Many Ulster nationalists felt it would enable them to join the Free State. And Craig had shown that he was taking the threat seriously, running his election campaign with the steadfast slogan of not an inch. But he need not have feared, for the commission, balanced as it was with one nationalist and uh, two unionists, would only end up giving away 1.5% of Northern Ireland's population and was pretty much scrapped, even as Craig hustled his way to London to implore the new Prime Minister, Stanley Baxter, to suppress the deal. Craig returned a hero to Unionists, and folk of the shipyard presented him with a whack of gold to represent the inch he never gave. By this stage, the Nationalists realised that they needed to go to Stormont to take their elected seats if they wanted to have any say in matters, but it was too late. Craig had abolished proportional representation as a further measure to secure the unionist position. It was hard to see what his endgame was, as the nationalist community, comprising a third of the population, was never going to stand for it, and it was not going to be a stable position to leave the country. Especially with what happened over the coming years down south. Now that pest of old pest De era had only gone and got his party into power by 1932, hadn't he? It was a momentous moment for Ireland, and showed how prophetic Sean Morland's words had been. The anti-treaty party had democratically seceded into power and there was no violent reaction from the other parties. Oh, how devil era would have rejoiced, probably phoned his bezzy mates in Berlin to tell him of his triumph, but he wasn't finished. In 1937, he effectively rewrote the constitution, forging greater autonomy from Britain, but stopping just short of returning to their public status that he had dreamed of. It wasn't until the Republic of Ireland Act signed into law on the 21st of December 1948 and coming into force on the 18th of April 1949, Easter Monday, the 33rd anniversary of the beginning of the Easter Rising, that Ireland, or ERA as it now wanted to be known, like it'd have a sex change or so on, actually became a full republic. Ironically, and something that makes me smile, is that it wasn't De Valera that achieved it, as he was in opposition. And in further irony alert, when the government chose not to enter back into the Commonwealth, as India had, he was openly critical of that decision too. But what did the UK say to all this? Well, the king, he was sound about it. Magnanimous, really. And he sent a nice message to Ireland's president, Sean T. O. Kelly. But it's a bit dull, so I'll paraphrase it in the Ulster tongue. It was something like, dead on, mate, fill your boots. Nick de Valera would be Taoiseach three times, and then president of the republic, his dream job. And a position he held until 1973. He would heavily push the Roman Catholicism and Gaelic identity of the Republic. It was a new era of era, possibly as a way to differentiate themselves from the United Kingdom, to forge their own identity under new rule, but in many ways it may have reduced even further the chances of reconciliation with Northern Ireland's unionists. The end. Almost. Now we're going to finish today's marathon sesh with a quote and a song. And the quote is from Patrick Pearce, one of the men of the Easter Rising. He said, Patriotism is in large part a memory of heroic dead men and a striving to accomplish some task left unfinished by them. And while he may be meant as a way of revering the dead for what they have accomplished and the striving of the next generation to complete it, a cycle of renewal and rebirth, yet to me it's a sad quote. Full of like morose sentiment and, and one that can be applied to all struggles. It's almost a, It almost alludes to being a slave to the past. They believed this and fought for it so now we have to follow and finish what they started. But isn't that just a problem? People clinging on to dead heroes, making them saint, like deifying them. I mean, when really all we need is a step back and go, I've had enough of this shit. Here's a new idea. What about forgetting what was done before? Stop eulogising all the mass murderers because that just pisses people off and not in the funny way. And let's see what we need to do now to fix this shit. Starting with getting the government up and running. Hey Arlene. Hey Michelle. Any chance? Just a thought. But it could be talking bad like so. We'll move on. Or not. Because I forgot the ad near someone. That Northern Ireland has passed Belgium's current world record of 541 days without a peacetime government. Way More Northern Ireland. But sad news. The Guinness Book of Records have issued a statement saying that this will not be an officially recognised Record as Westminster can still pass laws for us. Fucking Brits, ruining everything again, aren't they? bollocks I despair. Like anyway, we'll finish with this. It's not really a tune, but there is a bit of music. It's the Pathé news report of Era leaving the Empire. Hope you enjoy. Later. Four
1: hundred and eight years after Henry VIII was crowned King of Ireland, Era cuts its last link with Britain. President Shauna Kelly, the new state's first leader, joins a dense crowd in Dublin's O'Connell Street as the flag of era is hoisted on the GPO building. Here, as the veterans of the 1916 rebellion still recall, was the headquarters of the Sinn Féin Rising. And here, 33 years later to the day, the new era officially becomes an independent republic. There follows the biggest military review Dublin has seen for years. Units of the Republican Army parade past President O'Kelly. So comes into being the world's youngest republic. Although out of the Commonwealth, errs many common interests with Britain, will still keep the two nations close partners in the years to come.